They look like some sort of illustration in a mid-90s kids book about prehistoric animals, which, if you're familiar, it's a uh, really specific aesthetic that, personally, I think deserves some kind of revival. I don't know, maybe you're familiar with the Pokemon. Um, what's his name? Kabuto? I have to admit, my wife got me a classic Game Boy Color for Christmas, exactly like the one that I had when I was a kid. And I've put almost 20 hours into Pokemon Gold over the past three weeks. But anyway, the point is, they look like, like many things from the sea, otherworldly, ancient, relics of a bygone era, even straight made up for an animated children's television and game series that somehow manages to rely on its characters training animals to fight each other as a universe-building plot point, which is, I mean, problematic, right? I don't know. They somehow managed to simultaneously embody the moniker of Horseshoe, while also looking nothing alike, other than a Yuish similarity, just as much as their sight immediately calls to mind a crab, while not being one in the slightest. I'm talking about, of course, the Horseshoe Crab. That's today's topic. Horseshoe Crabs, their history, their very nature, and their relationships to each other, other species, us, and even our health. I'm Devin Boker. You are listening to The Wildlife. Stay tuned. Hello. I'm all right. How are you? The voice you're hearing belongs to today's special guest, Dr. Daniel Sasson. He's a behavioral ecologist primarily interested in studying the evolution of reproductive behaviors. He did his PhD at Florida, working with horseshoe crabs, and now he conducts research on them at the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. And as you'd expect, he's pretty much always loved science. Even when I was a little kid, uh, I remember my parents getting Discover Magazine for me. Oh, yeah. And I had that throughout, like, probably from the time I was seven or eight until graduating high school. We had a subscription for sure. that. So I was reading that all the time. Yeah. Um, I would, you know, my parents, we'd watch nature documentaries and those sorts of things. But they're both in the humanities, so it was uh -huh. a little bit different. Um, but, yeah, in ninth grade, we had to do a project where we had to talk about our what we wanted to be when we grow up and go interview someone in that time i thought i might want to be an astronomer so i went and interviewed someone at the planetarium where, where i grew up sure. um so so certainly the topics i've been interested in have changed yeah. since i was a kid but i think i was always pretty interested in science in general except chemistry <laughs> i don't like i don't like chemistry I, i'm right there with you chemistry was never my uh we just don't get along i don't think i don't, I don't yeah. know what it is but uh, I, yeah, not not my thing, not my thing. But everything else, no, science, either. great. I love it. I love I love yeah. the concepts of chemistry, but not mm. the actual work of chemistry. That uh. <laughs> yeah, I just I don't know. My brain didn't didn't work with it. Yeah, great. And I never found it like super compelling. Yeah, um, yeah. but you know, teach their own, right? Yeah. And that broad interest, that that clear, consistent curiosity, it didn't fade. One look at his website, and you'll see what I mean. I, I see cactus bugs, harvestmen. Uh, is it tinafores? Mm -hmm. Is that how you say it? Tinafores? Tinafores. Even though there's a big yeah. C at the beginning. Yeah, some people say tinafores. Some people say tinafores. I sure. was always told tinafores, but I, I don't know that there's a correct way to say it. Sure. 
There's also uh, tree hoppers and then, of course, mm-hmm. horseshoe crabs, which is like a, a pretty broad range of stuff. Is there anything about these that is like unifying as a whole that, that you're looking at them for? Not not especially other than the fact that they're invertebrates, which makes them um, like regulatory wise much easier to work with invertebrates. Sure. Um, but I'm generally more interested in invertebrates. But but broadly, I think I'm just more interested in the questions that mm-hmm. we can use these um, organisms to study. So I do a lot of reproductive behavior work. Um, and I started off with horseshoe crabs, but there were some things we couldn't, I couldn't do in horseshoe crabs that I wanted to do for my dissertation. Yeah. So then I was fortunate enough to, there was another lab at the University of Florida where I did my dissertation, mm-hmm. um, Christine Miller's lab, and she was working on cactus bugs she had recently started. And she said, if anyone is you know interested in, in doing some stuff with them, let me know. And I, I was interested. So I ended up working with cactus bugs to, to answer some questions about reproductive biology that, that I couldn't do with horseshoe crabs. Um, because as we'll probably get into more detail, horseshoe crabs can take like 10 years or so to mature. <laughs> and so you can't, you can't really yeah. do developmental work if, if you want to do that sort of stuff. And so with the cactus bugs, I wanted to change their diet during development and see how that affected like oh. male weapons and testes and sure. these sorts of things. And that wouldn't have been possible with, with horseshoe crabs. So, um, the Tina four thing was a bit more, <laughs> a bit more random, um, but we ended up doing, I think Joe, Joe Ryan at the uh, Whitney lab for marine bioscience. I did a postdoc with him working with Tina fours. Um, and he originally wanted me to, to join the lab to look at a certain question about potential sperm storage in Tina fours. And we never actually got to that <laughs> question. <laughs> Um, but we ended up doing other reproductive behavior stuff. So, so generally, my my interests are about how environmental factors or various factors affect our reproductive behavior. And so, all sure. these organisms that I've worked with, those are sorts of the questions that I've been been trying to trying to answer. Okay. Okay. Unfortunately, I've never had the privilege of seeing one of these uh, horseshoe crabs in person. The closest I've ever been is the weirdly accurate toy one that I have in my classroom file cabinet. But I've always found them to be just fascinating. Like you can't help but look at one and not immediately have questions. One I often hear is, are they really crabs? Uh, no. So they are arthropods like like crabs are, but they're not crustacean. Um, so they actually are more related to spiders and scorpions. Oh. They um, fall in a group called the Cholesterata because they have these little um, cholesterol, which they use to um, making hand gestures. You can't see that on the podcast um, <laughs> that they use to pinch their food and put it into their mouth. Okay. And so this is a, a feature that spiders and scorpions and, and other um, animals in that group have. Sure. There's actually a recent paper um, that came out two or three years ago uh-huh. that actually placed them in the arachnids, really? um, which has been sort of con controversial <laughs> so i think i think that's still a little bit up in the air but they're they're somewhere in that group related to, to spiders and scorpions and those guys okay um and i think they were just called crabs because you see a hard shell yeah. shell animal walking along the beach right and you say it's a, it's a crab yeah yeah <laughs> right is uh the, i guess is the horseshoe part of it just because they have that kind of um that curved u-ish shape or i mean is there any particular reason i I assume that's it. Maybe they're lucky. I, I, I don't know. Uh, um, but I assume it's just the shape sort of looks like a horseshoe would be my guess. Okay. Yeah. Believe it or not, horseshoe crabs aren't just one thing, one species. Yeah, there are four species. So there, there's one species in the U.S. That's the one I work on. Sure. Um, 
called Limulus polyphemus is, is their scientific name. Um, polyphemus because they have tin eyes, and so polyphemus means um, mini-eyed. Uh, if you read like the Odyssey in ninth grade mm-hmm. uh, class, like like we had to, you remember the Cyclops was named Polyphemus, but that was sort of given to him ironically by Odysseus <laughs> because he only had one eye. Um, so it's not it's a non-ironic name for for these guys. Um, and then there are three other species that live in uh, South. East and East Asia. The mangrove horseshoe crab, the Indo-Pacific horseshoe crab, and... Um, the China, and the Chinese horseshoe crab. Um, clearly, you can sort of guess where they live yeah. based off of these <laughs> names. Um, but the, the species that has the greatest population numbers is by far the one here we have in the U.S. The, the, either called the Atlantic horseshoe crab or the American horseshoe crab is the common name for it. That's so weird that there's... Um... I mean, like the the U.S. Atlantic coast and then Asia. <laughs> it's just yeah. a weird separation. Yeah, um, yeah. There's some interesting. I mean, if you find some of the fossils that have been found for horseshoe crabs have been found in like Germany, present day Germany, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, they they have a very. We can find fossils of horseshoe crabs that go back a long time ago that look relatively similar, and so it seems that they may have been. It's I don't know the biogeography of horseshoe crab. I should state that <laughs> right now, right? But it, it's likely you had these animals, these relatives of horseshoe crab that lived in some area, maybe even when the land masses were very different than yeah. they are now, right? And yeah. When the land masses changed and they they um, speciated to these different species, um, I should say that the one we have here actually goes down to the Yucatan, so you can oh. find these horseshoe crabs in, in Mexico as well. Okay. Um, so we call it the American horseshoe crab because it's the Americas or the Atlantic yeah. horseshoe crab they're still sort of on the Atlantic coast, but it's not just in the United States that you'll find um, this species of horseshoe crab that we have here. Sure. So um, I, I feel like a lot of people probably have a general idea of what they look like. I mean, it's kind of a domey mm-hmm. thing with a spiky tail. <laughs> um, can you yeah. can you describe, you know, maybe a little bit more uh, eloquently than, than what I just did? <laughs> what they maybe. Look like? uh, let me, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I can, but I'll give it a shot. So they look a little bit like stingrays, so sometimes oh, if yeah. people see them in the water, they confuse them with stingrays, sure. which often le- leads to some misconceptions uh, about their tail being dangerous. Uh, uh-huh. It's not at all. Um, but generally, yeah, they look sort of like a helmet um, or in a horseshoe shape. They have two main parts of their body, their prosoma and their pisosoma. So the prosoma is sort of like a cephalothorax where you would generally consider like a headish area. Yeah. Um, and the opisthosoma is the back area where they have their tail and, and other things. And they have a little hinge in between these two um, parts of their body. And they actually can bend along that hinge. And so if you if you ever see a horseshoe crab and it's bent along that hinge, right where that hinge is, there's a soft part. And that goes directly down to where their heart is. Oh. Um, and so that's that's the... If you're looking at the dorsal view, if you flip them over to look at their underside, their ventral view, they look pretty weird. Um, <laughs> so they look a little bit like a face hugger, the face hugger in Alien, oh, yeah, an Alien movie. Yeah. <laughs> right? So they have these these pairs of appendages, these arms that stick out that they use for walking and digging and, yeah. and some other stuff. And then they have these gills that are called book gills, which are which are pretty interesting. Um, so they look like they're called book gills because they look like pages of a book. Mm-hmm. They will flap 
up and down in the water and move and undulate. They actually can help them propel them when they're swimming oh. a little bit. Um, and then they have a long tail also called a telson that they, I said, it's not, it can't hurt you at all. They mainly use it for flipping themselves back over if they get overturned on a beach. Oh. And a lot along the Pisasoma, they all have these little spikes uh, and ridges. Um, and when they're juveniles, they are really spiky on top too, on, on their backside, they can be pretty spiky. Sure. Um, and they have two like large compound eyes on their persona that you'll, you can, will see pretty readily. They, I mean, they're very large eyes, but they actually have 10 total eyes. So they have a bunch of other eyes that are a lot smaller that you don't see as well that help them detect light and darkness and UV and these sorts of things that are thought to be used to you know like the lunar cycles and tide cycles because these things are very important for their mating behavior. Sure. Uh, so a lot of times you'll see them, if you see them up on a beach, you'll see all this other stuff sort of like growing on their carapace, on their shell. Yeah. And that's because um, they have this hard, hard carapace and they can live for a long time as an adult. And so what they'll get are called, um, we call them epibionts or they're just other animals that will live on their shell. So they'll have barnacles and various other things that will encrust their shell. Oh. Um, and sometimes you'll see pictures of them. They'll just be covered with these things, which presumably isn't great <laughs> for them, but I don't, I don't know that we really know um, for sure how harmful uh, these things are for them. I mean, at the very least they have to not help with like their hydrodynamics and getting through the water and these sorts of yeah. things. Yeah. One of the things about these that, that strike me is um, I have a, I have a trilobite fossil on my desk and it's probably just one of the, uh, cool. the molts. I mean, like a huge chunk of them mm-hmm. are, but they look mm-hmm. pretty, similar i mean not not exact but pretty yeah. similar um just yeah. really ancient prehistoric looking how, how long have these been around so a long time is the is the short answer we have fossils dating back to 450 million years ago of horseshoe crab an- <clears throat> ancestors um so you'll sometimes be you'll hear horseshoe crabs be called living fossils and that's not entirely accurate right so they have evolved they have changed over time but their body plan looks relatively similar um even going back 450 million years ago Um, we have fossils from i think around 150 million years ago that have been characterized to fit in the same um genus like limulus a limulidae um family so that are, are relatively similar to what we have in present day. So not the genus, I should say, I think it's family. Um, so they do go back a long time uh, with very relatively similar body plans, which is really, really cool. Um, so clearly they what they have going for them is, has been working for yeah. them pretty well. Yeah, apparently. And in all that time, while the world has changed 10 times over and whole other species have laid claim to the earth, horseshoe crabs have persisted. Their existence, their day-to-day, their grand biological behaviors have all gone largely unchanged. The most fascinating of which is tied to the moon. So here in the in the U.S., mating occurs depending on where you are and starting in late spring through mid-summer. So in Florida, where I did work from with them, they're a little bit different because, you know, the climate in Florida is different. Yeah. And so they will start mating in late February, early March and go through about uh, late April, early May. And then they'll have another season where, where they mate in the fall sure. um, from mid-September to late October. 
but that's different from most areas along the coast. Other, in most places, they only have one mating season and it usually starts in April and goes through late June or early July. So okay. often Maine will start later and end later. And then, you know, where I'm here in South Carolina, they'll start in April and end in late June. It's all tied to the lunar cycles, the new and full moons when the tide is highest. And when the time is right, they come up to the shore to mate. What happens is that the females um, will be swimming offshore and a male will attach to the female's back. They call this the attached male. Not very um, surprising name. Holding on for sometimes weeks. And so when those highest high tides are happening, the females will come up to the beach with the, this male attached to the back of her. She will dig down into the sand, 10 to 20 centimeters or so. Mm -hmm and she will spawn her eggs in, into that area that she's she's dug down. And so fertilization with these guys occurs externally. And so while the female is releasing her eggs, the male will also release sperm, oh, okay. um, which then will, will fertilize the eggs. And so sometimes it's just as simple as that. You have one female and you have one male that's attached to her, but it can be more complicated. Um, so you have some males that don't find a female to attach to, either mm -hmm. don't find a female or, or don't want to attach to a female. We, you know, these questions are still sort of up in the air. Yeah. And what they do is they will come to the beach by themselves without a female, and they will roam the beach looking for pairs that are mating. And if they find a pair that will that are mating, they will join that pair and and spawn as well. So they will also release sperm as the female is releasing eggs. Oh. And work my um, PhD advisor had done in the 90s showed that these, we call them satellite males. Mm -hmm. These satellite males can actually get a high percentage of that fertilization of the eggs. So when there's, when there's one attached male and one satellite male, on average, the attached male will fertilize about 80% of the eggs, and the attached male will fertilize about 20% of the oh, eggs. Wow. But if if there are two satellite males and one attached male, generally those satellite males will fertilize around 60% of the eggs, and the, the attached male will fertilize 20% of the eggs. Huh. Um, and as you increase the number of satellite males in a group, sometimes I've seen you know 12, 13 males around one female, which seems ridiculous. You don't you're like this male that's you know two meters away from the female, you're like, what are you doing? You're not, you're not going to be able to fertilize any eggs from there. But generally, as it, she, my advisor had found, Jane Brockman, that as you increase the number of satellite males around a female, the amount of eggs that they fertilize takes away from the other satellite males. Which only makes sense. So this attached male still has an advantage of being attached because it seems like generally, at a minimum, they're getting around 20% of fertilization of these eggs. Mm -hmm. um, but the number of satellite males can, can affect how, how well the attached males do. And we've, so also work in, in Jane and some other labs have, have shown that these satellite males differ from the attached males in that they're generally older and in worse condition. Okay. Um, and so it's thought that at some point in the male's life, they will switch from being an attached male to being a satellite male. Um, and why this is is still a bit of an open question, though generally the idea is that there is some male, these males, the switch point is called a condition-dependent switch point. Okay. So at the point in their life where they will do better reproductively as a satellite male than an attached male, they switch to become a satellite male. Huh. 
and and work by Matt Smith, who is a graduate student in the same lab I was in, has has shown that these attached males, one one possibility, one reason that some males may not be able to be attached anymore is that these attached males have suffer what seems like a pretty significant cost to feeding while they are attached. So they are grabbed onto this female um, and it, that covers up some of their mouth parts that they have. And as I said earlier, they could be attached, we think two or more weeks yeah. potentially. And so over that course of time, these males just may not be able to feed very well. So they may be, it seems like the work Matt did showed that they were starving. Oh, um, okay. And so these satellite males who are older males and in worse conditions, perhaps they just can't afford that cost of not really being able to feed for two weeks mm -hmm. to be an attached male, right? And so instead of doing that, they come up to the beach uh, by themselves and hope to get some fertilization, some fertilization that way. Um, so some one of the things that we're still trying to figure out exactly is what drives this switch point, though. When do males go from being attached to being a satellite male? Because you will find some attached males that are really old and in bad condition. Yeah. And you'll find some satellite males that look like they're in pretty good condition. And so, and so the females can lay eggs multiple times then. So can they mate with multiple uh, males intentionally? Like will it continuously be with the attached male that they came to shore with, or will they kind of break away and then uh, pick out some others? Yeah. So they will, we will see them with different males. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've tried doing some tracking uh, at our field site in Seahorse Key. When I was at the University of Florida, we would tag individuals and mark down when they came back up. And, and you'll see females come back multiple times in the season, and they will sometimes often be with different attached males. Um, but there have been some studies also uh, in Jane's lab showing that the female has some control over whether there are satellite males or not. Um, so females can do, do a couple of things. If, say a female comes to the beach with an attached male yeah. and she doesn't want any satellite males. Um, what Jane and Sherry Johnson, who was a postdoc in Jane's lab showed is that when males, satellite males come up to these females, these females, they call them intolerant females would just get up and leave and not <laughs> lay any eggs if they didn't want any satellite males. Um, alternatively, we have, we've shown that these, um, Females, we call them polyandrous females because mm -hmm. they have multiple males. They seem to have some chemical cues that they can release to draw in and attract satellite oh, males. Sure, sure. Um, and so there was an experiment done in Jane's lab where they took, you know, water from underneath the females and sponges and then placed them under model fake crabs. And the water <laughs> from females uh, that had multiple males, those those models attracted satellite males while the models without from females that were just with the attached male didn't attract satellite males, indicating there's some cue going on there. Their females are releasing some chemical yeah. um, to attract these satellite males in. Um, and so then the question is why are these females, some females attracting satellite yeah. males and some not? And it's poten potentially um, because of some genetic compatibility issues or perhaps because the female realizes for whatever reason that the attached male uh, with her is, is not the greatest. Um, <laughs> so I did some work during my PhD looking at the sperm uh, of these males, satellite males and attached males, and there are differences in, in sperm quantity and quality um, with these guys. And actually the, the males, 
the males that are attached to females that bring in multiple satellites have somewhat less sperm than the males that are attached to females that don't bring in satellites. So huh. one possibility is that these females somehow can detect that these males on their backs are, are, are duds, are not great, and so needs to bring in other males, right? Um, there's also, as I said, uh, Jane and Sherry have done some work on genetic compatibility and showed that when you fertilize and do in vitro fertilization with females with their attached male, when they're these monandrous females with mm -hmm. no satellite males, they do better, have higher fertilization than when you fertilize those eggs with a mix of their attached male and satellite males, while these polyandrous females are, are the reverse. If you fertilize their eggs in vitro with only the sperm from their attached male, they do worse than if you mix sperm with satellite males and attached males and fertilize the eggs. Interesting. Um, so there's probably some genetic compatibility issues or some sperm limitation issues um, that, that are driving these females' decisions. Um, as for how they decide which males attach to them yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Uh, we don't, we don't know the answer to that. Um, my sense of it is that the females may not have a huge amount of choice in that, but <laughs> sure. who knows? I mean, that happens off underwater, you know, yeah. in potentially deeper waters. And so <laughs> we haven't really out of view. Um, we've done some, you know, experiments in tanks trying to simulate these things, but it doesn't work quite, quite as well when you do it in a, in a tank. Um, but there's a lot going on there that we still don't quite know uh, the answers to. Is there is there any kind of relation to, um, you know, whether whether or not a female you know opts for more satellite males if, you know, maybe genetically it's more related to the attached male or or size like it's, is size an indicator or age like is there any kind of trend with that? Yeah, so that's those are good questions. Um, we, I don't think we have looked at genetic relatedness. Now that is a potential issue, right? Especially yeah. if females don't have a choice, if males that are more genetically related to the female, if they can, the females can detect that. We know in other um, insects and other animals, yeah. there, there are ways to detect relatedness through sort of um, chemical compounds or var various mm -hmm. things. Um, that could be potentially an issue, right? Because you don't want to have inbreeding yeah. and inbreeding depression, <laughs> which can depre decrease fertilization. Um, there have been some studies that have found that there is a sortative mating based off size is that that is like larger females will have larger males and smaller females, smaller males, mm -hmm. but not every study finds that some studies have found no trend in, in size assortiveness. So that's still okay. a bit unclear sure. about the size, the size issue. Um, so yeah, we don't, we don't really know. These are things that still need to be, be figured out about yeah. what's going on with these guys and how, how this choice is, is made. Yeah. But those are all possibilities for sure. Um, how, how big I've been, I've been trying to think about this. How, how big do these groups <laughs> get then? Like when they're, when they're in their big, well, I don't even know what you would call a group of horseshoe crabs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, spawning group we just call them groups i guess sure um and maybe there's a technical term that i should know and don't <laughs> um so most of the time you will see well it depends where you are so that i should state at first it depends what population you are so if you're in delaware where there are the most number of horseshoe crabs um of anywhere in the world mm -hmm. you will get spawning aggregations that are ridiculous um so i was I went up there to do do some work and they measure the number of horseshoe crabs they have on a, on a beach by using these quadrats. So these meter square 
things, they drop it down in random spots and count how many horseshoe crabs they have in one meter square. And there were times they were getting counts of like 12, 15 horseshoe crabs in, in one area in one meter. And so oh, you can't wow. even, with that's going on, you can't even really tell which males are with which females. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard to break apart how many satellite males is in with one female. Um, in other places, like in Florida where I worked, it was easier to tell generally, and we would have, I think the maximum we saw was 12 or 13 satellite males around a female um, at a time. Mm -hmm. I mean, but most of the time you see one or two satellite males or the female with just the attached male. Um, but you will get these, when you have higher density on the beach, when you have more individuals for whatever reason going onto the beach to spawn that one night, yeah. you, that's when you tend to have these larger aggregations. Okay. Uh, these larger group sizes, but it can it varies throughout the season and depending on the population where you're at. There's some places, um, like in the Florida Keys, I believe, and um, where there are lower densities, population densities, and there you generally find more often than not just one female with one attached male and not the satellite males around as much. Okay, okay. How, how many eggs, it sounds like a lot, how many eggs are these females <laughs> laying at a time? Or even at a time, like... so they can, I think the estimate, it depends on their body size okay. and body size changes across their distribution across the coast. Yeah. Um, but generally it's thought, you know, between 30 and 60,000 oh. eggs in a season. Okay. Um, so if you ever see a horseshoe crab, it's not a pretty sight, but if you ever see a horseshoe <laughs> crab, like a female opened up, their whole body cavity is just filled with oh, eggs. Wow. <laughs> during their reproductive season. And so they really are packing them in there um, to, to lay as many eggs eggs as they can. But um, as I said, it depends on size, and the size is hugely variable across the coast. So in, in the Yucatan or in Maine, at their, the northern and southern ends, they are much smaller. This is a rough estimate, um, but I think the average size is probably like 15 or 16 centimeters oh. um, the carapace width if you go across their their prosoma. Yeah. Um, whereas in Georgia or South Carolina, it can be for a female average like 24 or 25 wow. centimeters across. So it's a big difference yeah. in, in size across their range. Um, and my my friend Matt, when he was doing his PhD, one of the things he was trying to figure out is what is driving this pattern you see across yeah. populations and body size. Cause it's still, it's, it's weird. You know, usually you think <laughs> you go, you go in one direction and the size will vary across that whole population in that direction. But this one, there's a peak sort of in the middle of their distribution and then it gets smaller as you go north and as you go south. Oh, weird. Huh? Which is weird. right? Yeah, that is weird. <laughs> So yeah. 60,000 60, eggs, I mean, in a season, mm -hmm. if you have even a small population, that sounds like it would lead to a, a quite the massive horseshoe crab population <laughs> at some point. So I imagine that there's some kind of issue with survivability. Um, yeah. Because otherwise <laughs> sure. it would be almost overrun. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, what are some of the factors that, that influence that then? So there... I mean, there are both just natural factors and there are, you know, uh, anthropogenic issues going on. So a lot of things will just eat eggs. 
right? Yeah. Or even small juvenile horseshoe crabs of eggs may may hatch, get to their what we call their trilobite stage, mm-hmm. um, and then they're just so small, like anything in the ocean can eat them, <laughs> pretty much, right? <laughs> so um, if you have a stable population, um, that means that every individual is producing one offspring that gets to adult size, right? Oh, so okay. if a female is laying sixty thousand eggs then on average the vast vast majority of those will not reach it to adulthood oh wow um and oh yeah a lot of that is probably predation they depending on where you are too other things may happen so in delaware where the density is crazy high mm-hmm. um you have so many horseshoe crabs on the beach at one time so many females make digging nests that they will dig up each other's eggs um, and expose them. So if you go to Delaware or one of these high population areas after a spawning event, you will just see the beach strewn with these eggs, um, which is obviously not great for them. They need to be down in the sediment, you know, 10 to 20 centimeters deep so that they occasionally get, you know, hydrated with the tide coming in. Um, otherwise, if they're just on the beach, birds, migratory shorebirds, all sorts of things will eat these eggs. They'll mm-hmm. just get washed out to sea and get eaten. Um, so there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of things that can happen yeah. to a horseshoe crab before it can even make it to a decent <laughs> size to be protected from most most predators. I mean, horseshoe crabs, even as adults, can still be eaten by things, um, yeah. but mainly by very large things like. Uh, we're talking sharks, maybe alligators are sometimes seen eating them. Sea turtles will eat horseshoe crabs. Sure. Um, but generally, once they become an adult, they're they're pretty safe for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's I, my guess is it's this early um, mortality when they're juveniles in their first stages of life where, where most of the mortality occurs. Um, now, there are some threats uh, due to human influence, of course, like yeah. with everything else. Um, so degradation of spawning habitat has been a big one, especially for the Asian species. Mm-hmm. Um, if like the coastlines get built up or the sand or there's dredging or any of these things, if the beaches are armored to protect them, like by putting on these, you know, big things to help erosion that can, yeah. that can hurt potential spawning habitat. Um, so all these things are, are potential issues for, for the horseshoe crab and, and their population health. Um, there's other things as well. I mean, one of the, here in the United States, one of the, the big mortality for adult horseshoe crabs is harvesting for bait. Um, so they're harvested for conch and eel and whelk bait. Mm. And there are limits and there are limits across the, the U.S. in how many can be harvested, um, right? But that certainly plays, um, I think that, it averages between 600,000 to a million oh, per wow. year that are harvested for, for the, for bait. Um, so that obviously has an effect on, yeah. <laughs> on the yeah. population. Um, but as I said, there are regulations in place for that. Um, Delaware has moved to a male only harvest, right. With the idea that, that you still need the females to be able to produce the eggs. Yeah. We have enough males in the population um, to fertilize all these eggs. Sure. Um, so, so that has probably, helped a bit in the population numbers. I think New Jersey has gone and banned um, harvesting of horseshoe crabs for, for bait. Mm-hmm. Um, here in South Carolina, there's no harvesting for, for bait. Um, but that is probably one of the larger um, causes of adult, premature adult mortality, I should say. Obviously, they will die on their own. Um, 
they can live as adults about 10 years. These okay. guys are pretty long lived. Yeah. Um, it takes, it takes about 10 years to become an adult and then they can live for about 10 years. Uh, after that though, aging of horseshoe crabs is difficult. Yeah. Um, we don't really have a, a good way to do it other than doing some indirect things or looking at tags and, and seeing when they return, how old these guys are. Um, another way they do it is by looking at these, what I talked about before, these epibionts mm-hmm. that will attach to their carapace. So if you can age those, then you can oh, age yeah. the minimum age of the, the horseshoe crab. Sure. And so they've done that with these slipper shells that will attach. Um, because I, I believe as slipper shells get older, they will grow in size. And so you can estimate the age of a slipper shell. And then from that estimate, the, oh, yeah. how long that Love adult it. has been alive. Um, yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> wouldn't have thought of that. I'm doing that. That's, that's, that was really, really smart. Um, but horseshoe crabs will, you know, other than predation, one of the causes of mortality, the natural mortality is getting flipped over on the beach when they come up to spawn. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they're these little armored uh shells that come up to the to the beach and they'll be climbing on top of each other and all these sorts of things but then you have waves hitting them right and mm-hmm. so sometimes these waves or whatever can flip them over on their on their back and then once they're flipped over they can desiccate and dry out yeah. or raccoons or other things can come come yeah. and eat them and so that's actually what they use their tail for is to flip themselves back over um if they get overturned on the beach and so there's been studies that have shown that a uh, high percentage of the horseshoe crabs that are overturned on the beach mm-hmm. are that can't flip back over are ones with broken tails or really short tails. Oh. Um, so their tail can be, can break um, off for various reasons. And so if they don't have that, it's really hard for them to, to flip back over and right themselves on the beach. And so that is, you know, one of the higher natural causes of mortality for adult horseshoe crabs. Now, so far what we've discussed, it's only the tip of the iceberg, especially when it comes to connections to us. And so for that, I'm saving for a part two. For now, before we wrap up today though, as always, we have pretty much the same question at the end of every interview. What do you wish that people knew about the horseshoe crabs? Ooh, well, I mean, (laughs) I'm a little biased here. I studied their reproduction. Um, So certainly I think they're, you know, their mating system, their mating behavior for me is super interesting. And one of the things, so with the caveat, we don't know how their behavior has changed over their evolution, right? But we see um, fossils where they look relative, body plans relatively similar 450 million years ago, as we talked about Mm -hmm. earlier. Um, If they were coming up to land to like lay eggs, 450 million years ago and again who knows if this is the case maybe this is something that just evolved you know, 10 million years ago or 5 million years ago but if they were doing it that far back that is before there were any land animals around oh that's great cool. right? <laughs> so they could potentially have been doing this when there are no potential predators of eating these eggs on the beach which would be a super cool adaptation yeah um with again the huge caveat that we have no idea yeah. that's what was going on yeah, right. And I suppose the eggs don't but this, fossilize well either. So, like, looking for yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. But just this idea, right? I mean, how many marine organisms do you know of that like crawl up onto land to right. do their mating yeah. and lay their eggs? It's it's a really sort of unique. There's some fish that will like spawn right on the, the 
uh, tide lines. But I think it's a pretty, I can't think off the top of my head, very many animals that have a similar behavior. So I think it's super, super cool. That is cool. I, yeah, I, but... I kind of, um, I kind of, kind of light. I do have one last, uh, okay. one last question for you. And that yeah. is, um, in terms of conservation or, or valuing horseshoe crabs, I mean, what, what are your, I guess, what would your final thoughts be on that? What would be your uh, take home message for listeners? Well, I think the, the most important things like with most animals is preserving habitat as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, making sure we're not just completely destroying the, you know, especially their spawning habitat, of course, um, is is important for them as we see with the declining populations of, of many of the Asian species without that spawning habitat, it can um, decline pretty quickly. One of the things that is um, at a more like practical level of what you can do on an individual level, if you're ever at the beach mm-hmm. where horseshoe crabs have been spawning, one of the things we tell people is just flip them yeah. So if you see a horseshoe crab stuck on its back, you can just, you know, nudge it with your toe and flip it over and let it wander and get back to back to the water, which is a nice, easy way to yeah. you know, save a horseshoe crab life. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think I think really it's like most things, as I said, habitat, preserving habitat is, is super important. Of course, you know, they're, they're bigger things. Microplastics, we have no idea how they might affect yeah, horseshoe crabs. Yeah. Considering they're just in the sediment and eating all sorts of things out of the sediment, it's I wouldn't be surprised if microplastics are, are an issue with yeah. horseshoe crabs. Um, they eat all sorts of little invertebrates, so anything that is preserving like ocean health, marine health, will be beneficial for horseshoe crabs for sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's really the 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 conservation of their spawning habitats, which is probably has the biggest effect on their their population health. And that's all for today. Thank you again, Dr. Daniel Sasson, for being on our show, having that amazing conversation. It was incredibly enlightening, uh, very insightful. And my fascination with horseshoe crabs has only increased exponentially uh, since <laughs> since we had that conversation uh, now almost uh, two years ago. Close. As far as you go, the one listening right now, the one who I'm speaking into the ears of, thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate it. Hope you learned something. And as always, the obligatory shameless self-plug. If you would like to support the wildlife and the various shows that we do, as well as the blog and all of that other good stuff. You can do that at patreon.com slash Devin And until next time, part two, peace out, Rainbow Trout.